against the machines. This is a race with the machines. From quantum physics to poetry, from neuroscience to geography, from philosophy to immersive realities, Building 21 is a space where one can explore, play with, manipulate, bend, break, and probe the multifaceted dimensions of ideas, knowledge, and thinking. Gabriella Coleman is a full professor in the Department of Anthropology at Harvard University and is a faculty associate at the Berkman Center for Internet and Society. Trained as an anthropologist, her scholarship covers the politics, cultures, and ethics of hacking. She is the author of two books on computer hackers and the founder and editor of Hack Curio, a video portal into the cultures of hacking. She formerly held the Wolf Chair in Scientific and Technological Literacy at McGill University and was an assistant professor in the Department of Media, Culture, and Communication at New York University. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me. So I guess just to start, I mean, one of the things I like to do is just ask people what they think a hacker is, and maybe in answering, they could describe it and or connect it to something around hacking that you have learned, um, let's just say from the news or some other kind of area. So what's a hacker? I can jump in with some quick Yeah, thoughts. go right ahead. My first thought is that I picture somebody that's like, hunched over a laptop or something like in a hidden room somewhere. Like I have all these like cartoon sort of ideas of what a hacker is. Um, maybe somebody else might have better ideas for the second. Right. And someone, you know, some people are putting some comments in the chat as well. So other kind of, you know, encounters slash perceptions. I remember a while ago, I was watching this video where this uh, person uh, hacks into computers for companies for a living. So mm -hmm. he would like try to hack into their computers and see what the weaknesses are so that um, like people who are hacking for like their own personal gain can't do can do like the same thing. Okay, perfect. That's uh, security hackers. They're often called red teamers. Um, and actually, I have a current project on how former non-malicious black hats, people who broke into systems, but not necessarily for malicious purposes, rebranded themselves to become security professionals. Um, and that's a kind of booming industry today. Lots of opportunities for those types of hackers. Other, maybe one more kind of um, thoughts around hackers? Mm -hmm. Great. Um, I think to me, a hacker is somebody who's trying to decode to get some information out. So somebody like Alan Turing could also be a hacker. Okay. Great. Um, um, yeah, I mean, I, I like that answer for a couple reasons. First of all, you know, you noted the kind of tendency to kind of get information, right? And there's different styles of hacking, um, but certainly there's this consistent drive to access and liberate information. And this can be done in legal and illegal ways. And um, you'll learn a little bit about it. And then I like the Alan Turing example too, because Alan Turing, along with people like Grace Hopper, she was a very famous programmer that invented the compiler, are adopted by the hacker community as like historical hacker figures. So they kind of predated um, the, the period of time where people use the term hacker and you'll learn a little bit from about where the term came from, but then retrospectively people understand um, folks like Turing in part because of his work around cryptography um, as kind of hackers as well. I like to start with that because I mean, I think it's the case that many arenas that social scientists or humanities scholars study, you know, we, tend to see different facets of certain worlds. But there are certain worlds like hacking that just come with a lot of stereotypes. And, you know, I, I like this image, if you can see it, of like the super hacker versus like the nerdy hacker. 
because those are like the two really kind of common views of hacking. And actually like the nerdy hacker kind of exists, you know, I won't lie, but they're not necessarily like the dominant figure. And I've included an image of Eva, who is a very famous uh, security hacker who works at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Um, and in fact, you know, one of the things I like to also start with are images of, of actual hackers. And some of these images come from my field work as I'm an anthropologist. And it's just a good reminder that uh, even though this domain, like many technological domains has uh, a, a tendency to attract many males, <laughs> um, it, it is actually a bit more diverse than people think. And it's not only a bit more diverse, but it's actually very collective hacking in many respects. Um, even though the individual act of sometimes learning or breaking into a computer can be very solitary, the, the hacker scene and modes of pedagogy are incredibly collective. So I'm gonna talk a little bit about, I already did the hacker stereotypes. Um, I'm gonna then, you know, um, move on to blasting stereotypes and how I study hackers, who they are and who they are part two. And I'm gonna go through some of these quickly and if we don't go uh, through all of them, that's fine because I do wanna make sure there's time for Q and A. So, you know, I've been studying hackers and, and talking about them to students and journalists and filmmakers for 20 years. And I, I still get really, really frustrated by some of the kind of stereotypes and perceptions. So one of the things I did about two years ago is launch a website called Hack Curio, which is a video museum composed of um, short videos with entries where people can learn about the history of hacking, the different genealogies and genres of hacking and where they can also juxtapose videos of actual hackers, maybe giving talks or from documentaries and juxtapose them with representations from, from film, for example. So it's a great resource uh, if you want to check it out. And that's something that I will continue to do for a long time. I was also inspired by hacker methodologies of creating a public archive and also um, you know, using collaboration to produce knowledge. So again, just very briefly to talk a few about a few other stereotypes and um, kind of blasting them is, you know, another idea too, which is very prevalent. And I would say also prevalent in the hacker world is that like hackers are individual like geniuses. And, you know, many are very, very smart and self-taught often many Hackers who work in professional settings don't go to university. Some do, some don't. It's one of the few professions where you don't have to be credentialed. And I'm showing a, an image of Aaron Schwartz, who is a um, very famous hacker. Um, and uh, he passed away quite young. He took his own life after he was embroiled with the law in a complicated case that didn't really involve like breaking into a system. And there's a very, very good movie about him, The Internet's Own Boy. I really recommend it. And I, I, I mention this because even in the movie, which I love and I'm in and I help kind of advise with, he's portrayed as this individual genius, you know? But as you can see with the shirt, he's part of the free software movement, right? And so many of the things that individuals do, whether it's liberate information, write software, they do in part because they're nourished by a wider community. So I kind of wanted to mention that. So I got my start studying free and open source software. And uh, this is me pictured with a few hackers and um, free and open source software is uh, a movement and a type of software and a legal regime. And so basically certain hackers were against the use of patents and copyrights on software and source code and the early 80s invented the concept of free software in a legal regime uh, known as the copyleft, which works in almost the opposite way um, than copyrights and patents. And this is, I got interested in this domain precisely because I was puzzled by the way that these 
free software hackers had reinvented the law. They had hacked the law. And I, I found this very curious and non-obvious. And it's one of the reasons I went in and studied it. And so I hung out with hackers. I lived with them. I studied their online projects. I would go to their protests um, and these sorts of things. Uh, free software is predicated on openness and transparency and access. So it was relatively easy to study. They welcomed me. Uh, Anonymous, on the other hand, which was my second big project, um, Anonymous is a kind of became famous for its hacktivism. It's a very complicated phenomena. It's what's called a multiple use name. It's a name that anyone can take. Uh, the trajectory of Anonymous was such that the name was used for fearsome trolling and pranking in the mid 2005, six, seven, eight. In 2008, it started to switch towards kind of activism. By 2010 and 11, it really, really, really just fully um, exploded into a hacktivist phenomena. And I spent a lot of time in chat rooms studying people who were anonymous with their handles. And um, it was a really fascinating arena to study. I, I, I wrote a more popular book. Um, and eventually I got to meet a lot of people and because some got arrested. And one of the things that was also very, very interesting was like they had a very strong um, anti-individualism strain in the movement as well. You did things for the collective, not for individual fame. Um, much harder to study than the world of free and open source software. And my current project uh, is historical and it's precisely these former black cats who in the 90s broke into systems in part to learn from them. And it was just like the cool thing to do. And there was like these little intellectual secret societies who were learning the ins and out of computer security and, pro and networking back at a time where computer science departments didn't really specialize in this area. And then they had to transform their kind of image and MO in order to be taken seriously by the government and corporations. And now they are indeed some of the leaders in the world of security research. And so for example, one person, Mudge, um, has worked at the Department of Defense and he's the head of security at Twitter right now. So that's uh, my current project. So as you can see, there's a lot of variability and difference in the hacker world. So one might ask, what is a hack? Um, and I'm gonna provide a simple definition and give a more complex picture later. Um, but one of the original meanings of a hack is a prank actually. Um, and a, a very particular type of prank that was pulled off at MIT, which is where the term hacker actually came from. So MIT hacks are creative, whimsical, and often completely difficult campus pranks orchestrated by anonymous students working with military precision in the dark of the night. So usually there's this one day in particular, I believe in the spring, where there's a big prank pulled off by the hackers of MIT, for example, getting an actual fire truck on the top of the dome at MIT. Like that's an actual fire truck. Um, like how do you do that, right? It's, it's, it's kind of incredible. Um, so there's a long kind of tradition of, of hacking at MIT and I'll return to it. So to get to other definitions, there's something called the hacker jargon file and it's a ginormous compendium of hacker terms and lords, their history and their jargon. It's online, you get a book and they define hack and there's like six definitions. I like these two that I've showed here because they're almost polar opposite. Originally a quick job that produces what's needed but not well, an incredibly good and perhaps very time consuming piece of work that produces exactly what's needed. Usually you must rely on others to achieve that work. Oftentimes, if you do a lot of one, you can get to two. And I really like to think about like the craft elements of hacking. And I'll mention a little bit more about this later. So a final definition that I really like is this one um, by Jude Milholm. Uh, so the clever circumvention of imposed limits, whether imposed by your government, your own skills or the laws of physics. 
So to hack is also to circumvent what is prescribed, and that can mean a technical system, a law, or a norm. So MIT, as I mentioned, is where the term came into being. Um, there was a community of hackers starting in the, especially the 1960s, um, and there's a very famous book that covers this history, a journalistic book. And in fact, the term hack came from the Tech Model Railroad Club, where certain of the MIT engineers and nerds were willing to hack the railroad and not you know, treat it in kind of the way that um, a straight-laced engineer would do so. And that sensibility then um, was transferred to computers and there was a kind of obsession with programming computers in MIT and in many other university labs like um, Carnegie Mellon, uh, Dartmouth, and, and these sorts of places where computing first took off. And so in many ways, these were engineers who saw themselves as kind of renegades when it came to how they treated technology. Now, one of the things I like to emphasize is that even though you have that place where the term hacking came into being, and these university hackers are, are ones that helped influence, for example, the rise of the free software movement, which I had mentioned earlier, there, there are different genealogies of hacking as well um, that have different sources in different places. I'm not gonna mention all of them, but I'm gonna mention one because it's so interesting and so important and it's phone freaking. So in the late 50s, as these you know, hackers at MIT were developing the language and sensibility around hacking, there were phone freaks who were breaking into the phone system to learn about it and to connect with others. And two of the most famous phone freaks are Steve Jobs and Wozniak, though that was a kind of second or third generation of phone freaks. Um, there were earlier ones. Um, the original phone freaks used their voice to tap into the phone system. And I'm gonna show a very quick video to explain how that happens. And eventually people used blue boxes that emitted the tones that you needed to make free phone calls. Now what's interesting about the phone freaks was there's many interesting things, but one, one interesting thing is they are the ones who morphed into what became the computer underground, those black hats, often non-malicious, willing to break into systems. And whereas free and open source hackers and the, the kind of MIT community was predicated on kind of transparency and openness, the phone freaks and the computer underground were breaking the law, so they were not predicated on transparency and openness, but secrecy. Um, so let me just now show a video and then I'll, I'm going to mention a few more things and start wrapping up so that we have time for Q&A. But I'm going to take this so you can hear it. And I'm going to play the video, which is about the history of phone freaking. Make their calls. In the days when calls went through to operators, phone freaking wasn't possible. But as human switchboards were replaced by mechanical systems, different noises were used to trigger the switches. If you had perfect pitch like blind phone freak Joe and Grecia, you could whistle calls through the network. Let's see if I make it this time. This is really hard to do. It sounded like all the tones were present, so the phone should be ringing a bell. Now, okay, it hit the phone. It just takes a little while. He even showed off his skills for the local media. From his one phone to a town in Illinois and back to his other phone, a thousand-mile phone call by whistling. Join Grecia. Okay. So phone freaks, really interesting. Um, kind of different genealogy. Um, an excellent book, Exploding the Phone, popular book if you're interested in that history. So just to kind of um, start, you know, wrapping up, I just want to say a few things about what some of these different genres or genealogies share. And then again, remind people that there's also differences and then point to one slide that points to the different things that hackers have done and why they matter. So as someone who's like studied these people for a long time, I thought long and hard, like what unites 
the, the phone freak hackers, the free software developers, the cryptographers, the hacktivists, the security researchers. And I've settled on um, this phrasing that they are very committed to a craft ethic of excellence, but are also very committed to craftiness. Um, and so they have a strong craft ethic. And by strong craft ethic, I'm drawing on the work of Richard Sennett, a sociologist who, who defines it in this way, craftsmanship named an enduring basic impulse, the desire to do a job well for its own sake. So a lot of hackers actually have done things like create free software so they could do a good job in writing software. They're motivated sometimes to break the rules in order to do a good job. Um, but craftiness is kind of um, a sensibility which is about cleverness and trickery and willingness and comfort with rule breaking. And it's a, it's a very playful and analytical mindset of not, uh, of, of a willingness not to accept the given, to put that fire truck on the top of uh, MIT, a willingness to break laws at times for hacktivism. And both craft and craftiness need to be inculcated um, culturally, sociologically. And uh, a lot of my work has focused on, um, you know, unearthing those cultural and sociological conditions. And just, you know, to give an example of, of craftiness at work in the hacker world, forget the example on top, but BrainFuck is an actual computer programming language that like messes with your mind, right? This is what I mean by kind of craftiness, right? Or again, a willingness to break rules if need be, which is something again, that must be inculcated and nurtured. So many of the different genres of hacking are united by this commitment to craft and craftiness. But again, it's really important to remember that there's very different types of programmers. You know, those willing to break the law, those not willing to break the law, those willing to reformulate the law, many different ways to go about doing what you do. And there's many different technical activities that fall under um, hacking as well. Um, and so you might have breakers who break uh, a system in order to improve the security. You might have builders who like build new operating systems or hardware, right? And then the breakers come along and just show them how like their security is not so good and they get like, oh, mad. And anyways, so very different kind of like styles of building and different styles of hacker politics as well. Um, that some are very, very confrontational and antagonistic and others far less so. And there's very, very big regional differences as well. Germany and Spain, the United States and so on. I'm not gonna get into those, uh, but I'm happy to talk about them. So just to, to wrap up, because I do want to make sure that there is time for discussion. Um, I mean, I, I will show maybe what quickly some, some of the stuff around the regions. So Iceland, you have hackers who got really involved in the government with a pirate party. Spain has got the most unbelievable like hacker space, whistleblowing, hacktivism scene. It's just as I say, insane in the membrane. Um, and then in places like Silicon Valley, you also have hackers who are dis you know, disrupting so-called capitalism, making a lot of money and you know, maybe not doing things that are uh, for the best of society when you're measuring uh, by standards like um, equity and inclusion. So just to finish now, I just wanna finish with this image, you know, they're really interesting just inherently, but hackers have really changed the face of journalism um, when it comes to leaking, uh, data journalism, um, these sorts of things. They have built privacy tools. We wouldn't have contemporary grassroots privacy tools if it was not for hackers. They've been really involved in things like uh, the security industry, red teaming, creating the conditions for open access and software, uh, have changed the face of online protest. Uh, they've changed a lot in biology. Uh, so 
there's all these different domains where they're really not simply like being nerds, though they're doing that, they're, they're literally changing the world in very specific and dramatic ways. And just to finish, this is my last slide. Um, there's a current hacktivist by the name of uh, Donk Enby. Um, she is very prolific on Twitter currently. And after the January 6th um, attack on the Capitol in the United States, Parler, which is a kind of social network that was very popular among the people who were involved with the attack, went down. And she didn't hack anything, but she, she figured out how to scrape all the data. Um, and with the help of a big archiving team, uh, basically, yeah, sucked a whole lot of data and videos, both to um, historically document what happened um, and uh, kind of, you know, I'm not, I can't remember if the information was made available to law enforcement or not, because some, some hackers are like, we want this information, but they don't necessarily want to assist law enforcement. But certainly they wanted to keep a historical record of what happened. Um, and so I just wanted to use an example from recent times. So that's it. There's a lot more for me to say, um, but hopefully that'll give you a taste of the hacker world, why they matter, what they've done. And um, from there, we can maybe open it up to questions and comments. Yeah, what's the first question from Jill uh, Gabriel? Thank you so much. What is red teaching? Okay, is, sorry, is red teaming? Okay. Um, I don't know if I misspelled it there, but red teaming is, I mean, red teaming is great. Um, red, I mean, red teaming is something that academics do. Um, with the peer review process. So red teaming is a process of kind of adversarial um, peer review, right? Where the idea is you bring in a red team to break into your building. And once they find the holes, they can tell the company, this is how we did it so you could improve upon your security, right? I mean, the, it's funny because the concept of red teaming, again, is used now in, in especially security. It's used in the military. Um, CEOs will often hire red teamers not to probe the, the security of their premises, but to kind of um, unearth biases in their thinking that is hurting the company, right? Um, and I love this just because the, the idea of red teaming comes from like, the devil's advocate at some level, which um, I believe in the 1200s, the Pope instituted because too many saints were being sainted. <laughs> so they had to have like a devil's advocate to, to ensure that the saints were like, you know, really saints or whatever. But anyways, hackers are very famous for red teaming. And it's a strategy that one person who's written a very good book on this, Micah Zenko has said, it's really underutilized and I agree you know, institutions, especially for probing how institutions work, can use an external group of unbiased um, people who are there to sort of just say, this is why it's not working and poke all the holes in it, provide recommendations in order to improve the working of a system. Like a third party audit, one of the differences is that you are licensed to be adversarial and antagonistic, not in a mean way, but to have like total independence, right? And in the hacker world, um, for example, there's a phrase that a hacker group called uh, the loft. They, they had a phrase called like, or that they use, which is making the theoretical practical since 19 blah, 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 80, whatever. Oftentimes with red teaming or other hacker modalities, you don't just say something and say like, okay, theoretically, this is what I believe. I'm gonna show you, right? And often in the hacker world, that means either making a piece of technology, breaking a piece of technology, or making a new law, for example, like the copyleft to question copyright. It's not simply like, hey, here is the idea, but here's the prototype, right? That's really important in the hacker world. Abdullah, I saw you raised your hand. If you have a question, would you, before you question Abdullah, do you want to say a word or two to Gabriella about your project? 
Yeah, definitely. Um, do you want me to go? Because I know Sarah had a question too. No, go okay, ahead. Okay. okay, okay, awesome. Yeah, sure. Uh, so that was a very interesting talk. Thank you so much. Um, um, so my project, uh, what I'm working on right now is sort of, uh, I guess, the catchphrase is redefining democracy, mm -hmm. where I'm trying to understand um, the edge cases, which have a democratic government, but isn't probably completely functional or is struggling in other measures. Oftentimes, like they probably have sort of good economic growth, but they're struggling with human rights or like freedom of protesting or just freedom of speech online on the internet. So that's, that's a small spiel of my project. And I guess then my question was, um, this is me geeking out a little, but I watched Social Dilemma on Netflix. Oh, that yes. sort of yes. also piqued my interest in this. Uh, I was wondering if you had thoughts on like modern day contemporary hacking and democracy and like the role that could play in like government setting, like the bigger, wider picture, I guess. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, so I think, I mean, in, in some respects, it's in certain places, it's already happening um, where hackers intervene to kind of help with democratic processes, right? And sometimes it happens in small ways and sometimes it happens in, in big ways and sometimes it happens in ways that maybe are not obvious at first. So, you know, one of the things that's interesting about the hacker world is that they have certain technological skills, right? That maybe not everyone has. And the question is, do they use them simply for their own enjoyment or to make money or do they channel them for, let's just say, the purposes of democracy? Right. So you can't really have a democracy if there's unchecked buying on a population. Um, won't go into details why, but let's just take that as a given. Right. And for example, uh, there's a big German hacker group called the Chaos Computer Club, who um, are one of the oldest, most prestigious hacker associations in the world. And they've often acted as a watchdog showing, in fact, where the German government was using malware to spy on its population, right? And they're in a good position to do that because they have the skills to do so and kind of contact the government, right? Um, and it's just, again, we can't assume or take it as given that they're willing to do this, right? And it's very interesting to think about why they have. So that's like a small example. A bigger example is in Taiwan currently, um, Audrey Tang, they are a hacker who's using kind of like data and other forms of technology to help with the pandemic, right? And this is interesting for many reasons, but one of the things it has done is create trust in the government, right? And that's often important also for democracy to function. When you have massive mistrust, um, things break down. And then finally, like the final point I'm going to mention is, you know, journalism. So who here has heard of the concept of the fourth estate? Okay. So the idea is that the, the fourth estate is one of the pillars of democracy. And, you know, in, in its idealized version, journalism is a kind of watchdog that showcases the corruption by government or corporations or the relationship between the two where those corrupt policies um, or other maneuvers, um, yeah, hurt people and diminish democracy, right? And I do think actually one of the most interesting aspects of the hacker world of the last 10 years is that in the context of the United States, there was a number of establishment publications from the Washington Post and the New York Times who were unwilling to publish material that was critical of the US government in relation into, let's just say, the war in Iraq. Um, and and they, I mean, we know this, like the Washington Post and New York Times have said, yeah, the US government asked us not to do this, and we didn't. And then to WikiLeaks and, and leakers like Chelsea Manning provided information, right, that I actually think journalists should have been publishing. And in the, in the aftermath of those leaks, and, and you know, there's a lot of issues with WikiLeaks, uh, especially. But in the aftermath of those leaks, 
um, I would say that some, some of the establishment press became emboldened again to be more adversarial, to be more like a red team. And you constantly need that check on power. And actually hackers have been one group with willing to whistleblow and leak in a way that emboldens the fourth estate to do their work. So these are some of the ways I think that that hacking has has interfaced um, with emboldening the project of democracy. I think the example you gave with the New York Times and the Washington Post and the hacker, hack, hackers community is really interesting. But what is the accountability of the hackers community, right? So New York Times and Washington Post, they're a public institution. They get criticized. They get all sorts of political pressure. Right. The hackers community is, is, is anonymous, right? So where is the accountability and what type of pressure can you put on, on this community when you disagree with them, right? So the Washington Post, New York Times is an interesting debate to have whether to publish or not for, for national security reasons. But at least, hopefully, there will be a debate. So that, that's my question to you. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a great question, and I mean, um, there's two interesting facets to this, or three that I'm going to emphasize. I mean, WikiLeaks was was never anonymous, and Julian Assange has been in jail now for a very long time and is facing extradition, right? So there's the accountability at some level, um, insofar as. You know, there are risks to working with stolen documents. And, you know, historically, it was the case that the Washington Post, for example, was under an indictment not to publish the Pentagon Papers, and the publisher decided to go against the indictment. And eventually, the Supreme Court ruled that it was okay, but it was like, it was not clear what was going to happen, right? And so there's always these risks with working with... Um, stolen and sometimes classified documents. And in the case of the whistleblowing platforms, they, for the most part, have not been anonymous. Um, and there's real risks. And many of the whistleblowing platforms, like WikiLeaks, actually were working with mainstream journalists. So as soon as like um, Collateral Murder was published, a video that showed um, soldiers killing journalists in Iraq, it's, it's, It's uh, very disturbing if you haven't seen it. It's on Hack Curio. Like the mainstream journalists were publishing it left and right, right? Or the cables that were published by WikiLeaks, there were massive stories by the New York Times and Washington Post, right? So in some ways, like accountability comes from the legal system and whether journalists are willing to work with these uh, whistleblowing platforms. And they often are. The second thing is... Um, I think some of these whistleblowing platforms that first existed were highly experimental. And again, WikiLeaks, I think has been very important, but also extremely problematic. And I'm happy to talk about like many of the problems. And in fact, some other platforms have learned from the mistakes of, of WikiLeaks as they should have and are implementing better practices. So I'll give one quick example. So there's one group called DDoS Secrets, and uh, they do publish a lot. Um, and again, we know who they are. And so if uh, they, they, they're under legal risk and, and society can support them or not support them, right? And that's a kind of type of accountability. But recently they also got a big leak from Gab, which is another one of these far right platforms. And they got it from a hacker. The hacker gave it to them. And then this whistleblowing organization is not publishing all this stuff online, but entrusting the archive to journalists and researchers that are vetted. And to many of them, to 15, 20 of them. And there, that's like, that's like a great system. Because then you have an additional filter, which are journalists, right, who can vet, who can go through this. You're not putting at risk individuals who may just be posting stuff about their cats, right? This is a really good model. But again, I wouldn't totally entrust journalists to necessarily, like I like the model of giving it to a bunch of journalists because it creates a little bit of competition between them so that they'll do the research, right? Um, so there's, there's, there's benefit uh, to that. 
And then, yeah, I mean, my sense again now with just hackers who hack to get information, um, you know, most of the ones that are hacking to leak to journalists have for the great, just tend to find information that's damning of these companies. And they're just taking enormous legal risks. And the only way that this information gains traction is if journalists cover it. If it doesn't, it's sort of out there. And um, unless there is, again, damning information, the companies are usually okay. And if there's damning information, companies close down. Oh, well, I'm not crying for you if you're selling spyware to dictatorial regimes that then use the spyware to literally jail and kill activists. So what, you know, I know, I know these are complicated questions, but I just feel like oftentimes we worry about the, the hacker and not about the corporation that gets away with so much. They're the vigilantes in many respects, but the law protects them. So whereas when these individuals do these activities, either they're part of cybercrime enterprises and there's tremendous resources to fight them as there should be, or when they're hacktivists, um, they put themselves at risk and many end up in jail for 10 years. And those that don't get caught usually have done some measure of service, even though if there's collateral damage, let's say so, and let's inspire future hacktivists to be more careful. I don't know if that's a good answer. I mean, I do worry about this. It's a great answer. Convince? Thank you so much. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're convincing like, did me. I convince you? <laughs> yes, you are. Yes, you have yeah. actually. That's really interesting. Uh, I, I, I apologize for my ignorance. I never really thought no, about the difference no, between no. hacktivists and 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 criminals, cyber activity, which are, yeah. of course, because they're sort of lumped into the whole dark web, right, usually? Absolutely. And, and also, you know, even I think the point, nevertheless, even with the hacktivists where you could argue like you're doing a lot of good, they, they do take on the kind of like Spider-Man, Batman <laughs> persona. And the, it can be problematic. You know, and again, I do think that there are checks insofar as like Batman and, and Spider-Man never get caught, um, whereas the hackers actually often do, right? Um, and, and again, the data and, and stuff that they're often taking only becomes actionable when journalists are using it and they're taking advantage of it. Um, but the more we could have them do these sorts of things responsibly, the better, like give the data to a whistleblowing platform that will not just publish it, but will work with researchers, right? Um, of course, there's some downsides to that too, sometimes. Uh, if you'll forgive like a very sort of naive general question, like I, I often hear like the internet referred to as um, having had like a wild west phase that it is now exiting, right? Like being aware that, you know, it's like, okay, the internet, uh, you know, as a public user base is like barely 30 years old, right? If that, um, I think in 1994, right, is when it first, yeah. So um, is, the, is this something that is no longer going to be possible as it matures over time? Like, w w I guess, could we, like, could you talk a little bit about, like, the direction that free reign and experimentation, you know, is happening? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, it, it is certainly the case that, the internet um, has routinized to, to kind of use a academic phrase from Max Faber. And not only routinized, but now there's big monopolies as well, right? The Googles and the Facebooks. And there's a lot of worry and concern about them as there should be. Um, and then adjacent to that too is on the, Security has gotten a lot better, but it's also pretty bad still, right? And this is also one of the ironies about like security too. Sometimes, you know, it is good to have good security to protect customers. On the other hand, if you have like unbelievably great security, it will allow, yeah, companies and others to get away with a lot. 
as well, you know? And that's something I struggle with a lot as I work through two very different worlds where I believe in consumer security and other forms of security. And I, some, you know, there's some nights where I'm like, oh my God, there's a lot of spyware and exploits out there and a, a dark market in that. And, you know, nation states and bad actors ability to hack into a power plant or a water treatment facility and cause a lot of harm is very real. Right. Um, I, so, um, you know, I think when it comes to some hacking or whistleblowing, these sorts of things, I actually think there's still a lot of activity and possibilities around that. And the inclination to engage in those activities are external to the internet and it's more cultural. Do hackers inculcate the values in the spaces where they desire to build the Tor network, which is an anonymity network to build a whistleblowing platform, right? And I've written in a lot of detail about those cultural and sociological factors that help explain why a very privileged group of people are willing to do this. And I do worry about that because of, yeah, they, there are just so many economic opportunities or the world of blockchain, actually. Mm. Blockchain is one that sucks a lot of this kind of radical energy for a domain that I actually think is very, it's all about finance and making money, but it's clothed in this kind of language of radicalism. So there's that. But, you know, I do worry about the internet and people's experience of it, where there are many, I think, amazing magical aspects of the internet and its non-commercial guises. And also like some amazing elements with plat platforms where people kind of connect and form community. Um, but the power of social media companies to both like encourage addiction, this was in um, you know, the movie that you referred to. Um, uh, and, and also, you know, creates a space where there's like four, four places people go to online, you know, that's, I don't think great for, for users. And I do worry about that for the future of the internet. Um, yeah, but it's a complicated, it's, it's a great question. Very, very complicated to sort of answer um, given, yeah, the different sort of players and, and dynamics at play, but important to think about. So Gabriel, I have another question that we sort of uh, we sort of broached, but I think you you also mentioned it uh, at one point during your talk. How about uh, diversity in the hackers' world? So my my perception of it, and some of the picture you showed also show this, mostly not that diverse. Uh, of course, you need a computer, you need all of these things. Plus, plus it seems to be male dominated. Is that changing? Is that true or? So points of view also, it's not just diversity right. of people, it's just diversity of points of view and, and yeah. opinions. And I'm glad you differentiated between the two, right? Because um, both matter. Uh, so some of you may not know, it's just fun to know this, but you know, the original computers and programmers were women. And during the war, when a lot of World War II, when a lot of men went off to fight for the war, many women and mathematicians were enlisted to program the first um, computers. ENIAC, oh, for example. Also the first, first computer programmer, no? Lady Lovelace? Yeah. Lady Lovelace was, um, is often, you know, uh, enshrined as one of the first programmers. Uh, Grace Hopper, who I referred to earlier, um, was one of these women enlisted during the war, um, became extremely famous because she created, for example, the compiler, which was really important. Um, and women were also really important for code breaking as well in both the UK and the United States. And so very early on, the commercial academic um, computer world was very female. And then as men returned and software became a profitable industry, they were muscled out. And there's 
a couple of really good books on this. The hacker world from the start was very male, unlike the programming world. And um, certainly by 2010, there started to be a kind of discussion about this. Prior to 2010 in different hacker circles, there was what I call a kind of naive belief in, belief in meritocracy. It was like, you know, we're here because we're interested in it and we um, judge each other on the basis of technical merit, not your race, not your gender. They even have like manifestos about this, right? But then as actually more people got involved, people were like, uh-uh, no, this is actually keeping people out. We need more types of people. And all of a sudden projects started to proliferate around diversity or to fight harassment. Um, in, in certain areas like open hardware, there was often very prominent women from kind of the get-go. Open source was one of the first to kind of embrace diversity politics. Uh, security, it came later. And so what's interesting to me is, is, is it where it needs to be? Not at all, right? Um, but in some ways, some of the conversations that is happening now at universities or because of Me Too movement um, happened a little earlier in the hacker world. Um, and in, in some respects, for example, there's many trans people in the hacker world. And that's, all, that's been the case for a long time. It's very accepted. It's very interesting to think about that. Um, why it's so common, why it's so accepted. Disability is another area where there's a lot of people with disabilities. Um, the phone freaks, many of them were blind. This is something that has been part of this world for a very long time. Generally, I would say now, the discourse is one that's aggressively focused on inclusion and equity to the extent that most, for example, communities this summer started to even change language. For example, um, there's something called the blacklist. If you run uh, a server, you blacklist certain email addresses. You know, people are like, let's come up with another name. So generally, it's it's been pretty, let's say, woke, you know, which I think some people find very surprising, right? But I would say it's a fragile arrangement. And it's a fragile arrangement because there's other quarters of the geek world um, coming out of the gamer world but also coming out of very reactionary communities in Silicon Valley. Look up the dark enlightenment. <laughs> Some very powerful players in Silicon Valley who are just like, screw this, you know, you're impinging on my freedom. And so there are social circles that, where there's been a backlash to this, right? And younger programmers and hackers, you know, have a choice at some level. So it'll be interesting to see how they guard against the backlash, if that makes sense. And that's something I watch very carefully and I worry about because I think it's good to get these rid of these naive conceptions of meritocracy. It's good to bring to create more inclusive spaces, right? And there again, the politics are not without its problems, and it's not that they've succeeded, um, but it's been a very laudable move and in the context of a society where reactionary thinking has taken hold in many different quarters uh you always have to worry about this so I have another able, question but i don't want to monopolize yeah aditya has a good question so to be able to hack a system is a product of privilege generally yes um but it's also i mean there's um you know I think anyone who's had to work around a system has a kind of hacker sensibility, right? So if you know like the history, a little bit of the Haitian revolution in Haiti where slaves were able to get information about the revolution in Europe and organize a, a revolution. I mean, that's one freaking huge hack, you know? to be able to kind of organize under those conditions. So it, it often is in, in the way that I study hackers, 
But it's also interesting to think about sociological conditions where people are constrained and within that system of constraint really come together to evade power and enact change and social revolution, often in very crafty ways. Craftiness is something that, again, I've tied to the hacker world, but is absolutely the case that often people who are under extreme oppression have to be crafty for survival, right? So that's a sensibility that I think can and should be applied to other domains as well. So either privilege or social skills. Uh, say that again. So you either have privilege or you have social skills. Yeah, or both. Exactly. Or both, yeah. Because a lot of people don't use their privilege for craftiness, right? So like, why are they doing it, right? That's also interesting to think about. Um, and again, also sometimes people under extreme oppression, totally understandably also, you know, um, don't choose to execute their social skills or don't develop them. So it's always a kind of question as to like, why and why does it happen, right? Um, so. Thank you. You're welcome. I was wondering, do you think people should be trained to hack? Should it be a basic educational skill or a personality or, or you know, a trained or is it a personality issue that you can identify who a hacker will be, who will become a hacker? Right, right. No, it's, that's a really good question. I mean, I think sometimes there's been a little bit too much of a focus on like, oh, you, you have the personality or you don't. And I don't think that's helpful or that could, that could be a barrier. That could be a barrier because if, if one type of personality gets typecast, then people don't identify with that world. And actually in the hacker world, there are different ways of hacking and different skills and no one can have all the skills. And there's a movie I really like. I mean, it's very problematic in some ways, but there's a, a movie I like called Who Am I? No System is Safe. And it's this German film. Uh, and Germany really has like this amazing hacker culture. It's it's really mind blowing. But what I like it is that there's four different types of hackers uh, portrayed. Unfortunately, they're all male, which was a big mistake. Um, but one, for example, is a social engineer. Um, and a social engineer is someone who's really good at extracting information from people. Um, and this person doesn't have any like strict technical skills, but social engineering is super, super important uh, to do the sleuthing work that's necessary for hacking, you know? Um, and so it's, it's a, and there's very different personalities as well, you know? Now that said, certainly, uh, like if you're going to tinker a lot with technology, you have to be good with frustration because technology can be very frustrating, right? these other elements. So, so I don't think it's good to focus on a personality type because it can narrow who will identify and participate. What I do think is important is to expose people to hacker worlds. And that can come through a training, a hackathon, going to a conference, right? I, I think it's good to introduce people to different styles of um, technological tinkering you know, because maybe you might find, oh, I love building like crazy robots or whatever, but programming is not my thing, you know, though, though there's some programming for building robots, but <laughs> they could be different. So I do think it's good to expose people to the different kind of technical styles, because it's very, very rare, even in the world of hacking, where you have someone who is able to command these different technical areas, right? And they are more attracted to one versus another. But I think from the perspective of lay people, they think, oh, hacking, it's either just programming or breaking into system where there is so much more. But exposing people to this stuff, I do think is really important. Um, and, and doing so in educational contexts is one way to do it. Yeah, I think it was already sort of in the, in the chat, but I, I wonder, uh, to what extent we might eventually consider like coding as like a basic life skill that people should be made access to. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
know, there's, there's like some, there's always like, you know, you'll, we we'll often read one op-ed, which is about like, let's have coding in school. And then right. another op-ed that like is against that um, for complicated reasons. And I mean, my own personal view on it is that it really should be offered in schools. It shouldn't necessarily be overvalorized insofar as, I don't know if we talked about this, Olivia, but sometimes I think it's funny. I, I, as someone who studies technologists, I also teach a lot on how technological solutionism is very bad. But actually, I like the hacker world because some of their solutions, they may use technical means, but like the copyleft is a legal solution, you know? Or building a whistleblowing platform is done in a way that has a very good awareness of how journalism works, you know? So on the one hand, I would want people to learn coding. Um, and I'll explain why in a moment. On the other hand, to do so in a way that doesn't overvalorize the technical as the way to solve social problems. <laughs> it's not an easy thing to do. Now, the reason why I do like it is coding is power. And if you are able to kind of, the more people that know how to code, it's not just going to be a very kind of narrow type of person to go back to Olivia's uh, great comment. And we'll see, I think, some, some better forms of technology as different types of people learn this. We see this with science as well. Oftentimes there's better science when you get very different types of people involved. Same thing in this world, again, but done in a way that doesn't prevent coding and technological fixes as a kind of panacea as well. So how does this community govern itself? We're talking about governance. That's a really good question. Um, so it's mostly self-governing by norms, you know, um, where... For example, the, the hacker uh, underground in the 80s and 90s, people who are breaking into systems, many who became security professionals, um, it was really frowned upon to do what you did for carding, for stealing credit cards, stealing money. It was like, that's intellectually beneath us. We're here to, to learn, right? And that, that worked pretty well. It wasn't perfect, right? Um, but that also, you know, um, among academics, uh, we have a kind of similar thing in operation, right? So it's really frowned upon to, to fudge data um, and fake things. Though it does happen, right? There's researchers who are outed to have like invented all their data. There was a very famous case in the Netherlands with a psychologist. Um, and so some is just like social sanctioning, right? And so there's a lot of that in the hacker world. And because, you know, one of the points I made earlier, um, there's like a lot of kind of collectivism and sociality, those norms go a far way. But, you know, they break down, right? People sometimes do what they want to do. Um, and there's different communities that tolerate different styles of, of rule breaking, norm breaking as well. So it, it's again, not, not perfect, but that's, that's kind of one way. Now, software projects, like free software projects. Um, I studied one in depth, Debian. Oh my God, they have, they have a constitution. They have really complex rules for voting. They, I mean, their governance, is, is something to emulate if you're trying to create an online project. Um, and again, I wrote about this as a grad student because a lot of people who were portraying these worlds were portraying these worlds as peer-to-peer -peer ad hoc. And it's like, oh my God, no, there are many institutions that are many societies, you know, and they've put so much thought into them. Um, but again, not every hacker project is going to follow that model, but but there are models in that world where they're highly, highly um, stylized and well thought out in terms of governance as well. Well, thank you. This is so fascinating. You make it 
so much more interesting than <laughs> what we hear in the media, right? About this, yeah. this, this interesting world of, of, of yeah, libertarian of rogues. Yeah, yeah, there's yeah. bits of it, but they tend to be either in the hardcore tech press, like Motherboard and Vice. They have really good podcasts. They, they started a hacker zine. But uh, otherwise, yeah, yeah. And, you know, even there's like this great book I'm reading called this. And they tell me this is how the world ends by a New York Times journalist. And she got into this world of selling exploits, which was kept very undercover because people were embarrassed by like, I'm going to take an exploit that I used to publish for the sake of getting it patched. Now I'm going to sell it for $500,000 to a broker who might who'll sell it to a government. And again, this is a tiny corner of the hacker world, uh, but a powerful one. And there's a lot of pressure to keep the secret because of the norms, you know, is, is frowned upon. And I give this journalist a lot of kudos for spending seven years in piecing together the major players and how this works and, and the government, like the US government is the worst. They enable this market, the NSA. But there's a moment she falls into just this terrible sensationalism. Even, you know what I mean? I'm like, ah, Nicole, why, why? Because the tropes are just there and so common and not necessary, but they're so common that they even fall into them. People who, who know better um, almost subconsciously. Maybe to wrap up, you know, we need more people studying these worlds. So please. It's a small, it's a small community that you're part of academic, academically, isn't it? It is. It is. I mean, it's grown. And if you go to Hack Curio, where you could, again, see a different facet, a lot of the entries are written by academics or journalists and even some hackers. But a lot of the academics or journalists who are working in this area, and it's definitely proliferating. But I think certain, except for the field of media and con studies, like it's still frowned upon a bit in sociology, anthropology. If you do poli-sci, you, you, you can study this, but you might study it at a kind of high international relations level, sort of getting into the weeds. There's just not a whole, a whole lot of disciplines that kind of encourage or push that. And I, that's what I believe needs to happen, is like really long-term sustained empirical work, I call it, whether it's historical, sociological, anthropological, we need people. <laughs> so, but thank you. Thank you so much, Gabrielle. Yeah, that was so absolutely much. fascinating. Thank you. So thank you. Much. Yeah, thanks for having me. Have a great night, everyone, and stay safe.